might be sitting in here and this is the first time you've seen it drawn out all throughout scripture, but this is not something that's new. It's something very old. And it's something that God has been doing since before time began. He has planned this and now he's executing it and eventually he will get it. He will complete his mission to be worshiped among all the nations. So we're just going to look at that today in scripture to, to be reminded of the glory of our God, to see his greatness, to celebrate his goodness, that he would draw people to worship him because he didn't have to. He didn't have to do any of this. So, so how good is our God that he draws us to worship himself, to see him for who he truly is? And so actually, I want to start at the very beginning of Scripture when God says the first words that he will utter to, to Adam and Eve, his created order. So God creates all things in Genesis chapter 1. We know that. And in Genesis chapters, uh, uh, we get 126, 27, where God describes his creation. He says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. The first command from God to mankind is to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And you know what, Sarah Morgan, I am actually going to have you click through slides because I think my clicker is going to be spotty from up here. Thank you for doing that. God's first command to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Ironically, uh, Adam and Eve failed. They eventually were fruitful and multiplied, but because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, they didn't multiply worshipers of God. They multiplied rebellious, treasonous sinners who then filled the world with so much wickedness and evil that by Genesis chapter 6, God plans and then chapter 7 executes the flooding of the earth because he is just going to wipe out the wickedness of mankind from the face of the earth. He's like, no, this is, we're starting over. And so he starts over with this guy, Noah. And when Noah and his family are walking off the ark, look at this. God says the same thing. Be fruitful, Noah. Multiply and fill the earth. God's intention from chapters 1, chapters 9, it hasn't changed. It's to fill the world with worshipers. But, but what do we know is the same problem that Noah has that, that Adam and Eve would come to have when they sinned in Genesis chapter 3. Well, they're sinners. They engage in sin. They have a sin nature. It's who they are. It's out of the overflow of their hearts that they sin. It's not circumstantial. It's who they are at their core. They're sinners. And, and therefore, they're separated from God because of their sin. And in Genesis chapter 11, not only are they separated from God, they, they multiply and fill the earth, but again, not with worshipers of God, with treasonous rebels who gather together into one place, and they're building this great tower to be like God themselves, to, they're going to be their own authority. And so in response to direct disobedience, God told them to go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and they said, no. We'll worship ourselves, gather here together in one place. And so God, to judge them, he, he, he strikes their tongues. And in an instant, we go from one people speaking one language in one geographic location to many people speaking many languages. They're scattered all over the face of the earth, and they're separated from God again because of their sin, and they're separated from each other because of cultural, language, and geographic barriers. So what is God going to do to fill the world with worshipers? 
That's still his mission. That's still his mission today. What's he going to do? How is he going to fix the issue of sin? How, how is he going to fill the world with worshipers? Well, again, Genesis chapter 12. This is the foundation passage of God's mission. And I want you to lean in close right here because Genesis 12 is a hidden passage for a lot of people. But if you understand the next three verses, your understanding of the Old Testament will change. Like radically. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the foundation of God's mission. Here's what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, he would later rename him Abraham, if you're more familiar with that name. He says, Abraham, go from your country and your family and your father's house to a land that I will show you. So, so first and foremost, God calls Abram to himself. He calls him out of his father's household and into a new father's household, namely God the Father's household. He draws him away from pagan worship and into worship of the one true God of the world, the creator God, the triune God. And, and not only that, he draws him out of his own land. The, the place he was living, he's actually going to separate him off from other peoples. And, and if you're Abram receiving this message from God, aren't you a little bit like awestruck? Like, whoa, God just revealed himself to me in, in an incredible way. But this sounds really scary. Like, leave my friends, my family, and my stuff. Lord, why? But God says, hold on, Abram, here's where I'm going. Check this out. Verse 2, go to the land that I will show you. And I will bless you, and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I want to pause right here. Notice, God is going to bless Abram like crazy, but it's not just for Abram. It's not even just for his family. It's so that they will be a blessing. So, so God is establishing a pattern right here that he's going to use throughout the rest of Scripture and even throughout the rest of time. God blesses his people so that they will be a blessing. God's blessings don't come to you to stop with you. That you are a vehicle for blessing, and how far is that going? Where, where all is that going to? End of verse 2, verse 3 picks it up. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you and your offspring shall all the nations be blessed couple things are happening here one god is giving us a picture of what the rest of the old testament is going to be god is going to bless the offspring of abram like crazy abram will have a son named isaac isaac will have a son named jacob jacob will have 12 sons they'll be called the children of israel and these 12 tribes will be blessed like crazy by god throughout the rest of the old testament why well, for the longest time, I thought it was just because God loved Israel. I thought this was the pattern of the Old Testament. I thought this was really all that was happening. But what I think we can see from some of the most famous stories in the Old Testament, and we're just looking at a snapshot, is that God didn't just bless Israel for Israel's sake. He did it so that all the nations of the world might be blessed. And not only is God giving us a pattern here for the Old Testament, God was actually preaching the gospel to Abram. Through the line of Abram, through your offspring, all the nations of the world would be, would be blessed. Well, who's going to come from the line of Abram that's going to be the blessing to all the nations? We'll get to him later. 
he's the one we're here to worship this morning, but, but God is proclaiming a gospel of peace to people who do not deserve peace from God. That's amazing. Well, the offspring of Abram, as we know, at the end of Genesis, they've become this larger people, and they leave the land of Canaan to go into Egypt to escape a famine where they find brother Joseph is put in charge, and he's been fruitful, and he's multiplied, and he's, he's been a blessing to the people of Egypt. And what's crazy is the opening chapter of Exodus even talks about how the offspring of Israel were fruitful. They multiplied, and they filled the earth and the land of Egypt such that the people, the Egyptians, were terrified of them. They were like, we've got we to stamp these people down. And so they start to curse the people of Israel. They start to kill their children. They enslave them. They oppress them. And so what is God going to do? He's a covenant-keeping, faithful God. What is God going to do in response? He hears the people of Israel crying out for help. And, and he drops 10 plagues. And, and then he brings his people out of oppression, out of slavery, into the wilderness by parting the Red Sea. And they just get to walk through it. And for the longest time, I heard this story, and I was like, man, God, really, man. He loves Israel. He loves Israel, and that's the whole point. What I didn't recognize for the longest time was that even in the midst of dro God dropping major judgment on Egypt, he was even blessing them in the meantime. How do we know that to be true? Because when God is about to drop the ten plagues, when he's about to part the Red Sea, he tells Pharaoh why he's doing it. And it's not merely for Israel to have a nice story about how God loves them. Here, here's what God says to Pharaoh through Moses in Exodus 9.16. God tells us why he's doing it. He says, but I have raised you up for this very purpose, Pharaoh. It's the central purpose that I might show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Even in the midst of God dropping judgment on the people of Egypt, He's bringing about their worship. He's proving himself to be greater than the God of, that Pharaoh claimed himself to be. He's greater than Ra. He's greater than, he's greater than all. Only the God of Israel can provide salvation in this way. And, and what's crazy is that this story, again, God tells us that all the earth may know, this story does not stay localized to Egypt. And so when the people of Israel are, are led out, by God's powerful hand through the Red Sea, they eventually make their way into the wilderness. They'd go up to the mountain of Sinai. They'd receive the law. They'd break it. They'd spend 40 years in the wilderness. And finally, they would get a second chance to enter the land of Canaan, a new generation. And Joshua is going to send out 12 spies into the land. And they're going to be received by a woman named Rahab. And Rahab lets the spies into her house. I, I don't know how, you know, as an American, how I'm supposed to feel about this. <laughs> like, like, if I just started allowing foreign governments into my household because I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just scared of y'all. Like, y'all just come on in. Like, y'all can overthrow the government. Just remember me <laughs> when, they, when that happens. But Rahab, she's not just allied with the people of Israel, breaking faithfulness with her own people. She's not just allied with them because she's scared of them. She just sees their God, and she's like, that, that's the one true God in the world. So, so listen to her words in Joshua 2. 
I know that the Lord has given you our, uh, it's our land. It was. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on earth beneath. We're, we're just looking at little snapshots in the Old Testament. But if we wanted to, we could look at every single story. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the giving uh, the building of the temple, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, uh, it, every single story, the Lord is making this claim that all of it is pointing to his glory among all the nations of the world. And he's even receiving their praise. Rahab would incorporate herself into the people of Israel. She would end up marrying an Israelite guy. And, and the, the one who would be the ultimate blessing to all the nations would come through this woman's lineage. That's how crazy cool our God is. Jesus has the nations in his lineage. That's unbelievable. But it's true. I want to show you one more famous story from the Old Testament. Anybody familiar with this one? David versus Goliath. This is, uh, this is the quintessential textbook theme of every major sports movie. right? R remember the Titans? Uh, the Little Giants, Chicken Little. Uh, great underdog sports movie. Like, it's a great theme, right? The little dude knocks out the big dude. Short guy wins. And, and those are all David and Goliath stories. And for the longest time, I read the David and Goliath story. And I was like, this is incredible. If God's got my back, there's no giant that can stand in my way. Like, this is, fen this is phenomenal. I'm not that tall. But now, all of a sudden, I've got a shot. But the problem was, I was kind of reading the Bible like a yearbook. Anybody remember getting a yearbook growing up? Do they still do yearbooks? Yes. Okay, sweet. You get a new yearbook. You crack it open. What's the first thing you do? Where's my picture? Where's all my pictures? <laughs> Am I in any action shots? And I was doing the same thing with David and Goliath. I'd crack open the word of God and be like, where am I? Where am I? And I'd find a hero, and there I am. What's the problem with that? The Bible's not about me. Like, it, it's not even ultimately about David. The Bible is about a God who we can hardly fathom. We can't know he's invisible and he's making himself visible through his word and through his son, ultimately. Like, how cool. And so when we see the story of David and Goliath, I think David would even, like, blush a little bit to find out that we call this story David versus Goliath. Because I think when he walks out on the battlefield, he takes no credit for the victory. Seriously. When he walks out on the battlefield, here's the words that he says to Goliath. How he knows he's going to win. He's a teenager fighting a nine-foot giant with a 75-pound spear. He has no business being out there. And he walks out and says these words. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. The only part that David plays in this story is to show that the God of Israel is the true God of the world. <laughs> That's why he's going to win, not because of anything special about him. Psalm 67 was written by, by the same man, David, and he wrote, May God be gracious to us, bless us, and make his face shine upon us. I grew up in uh, the state of Arkansas in a pretty southern traditional church. I had a pastor, giant mustache. He was awesome. His name was Tony. Tony preached in a suit. He had a big old pulpit. I mean, it was the whole thing. 
It was awesome. Every Sunday, a lot of times, uh, he, he'd preach a sermon. Then we'd sing a couple hymns, loved them. Then he'd hop back up and give a benediction. And a lot of times, it sounded like Psalm 67, verse 1. He'd say, God be gracious to you, bless you, and make his face shine upon you. Y'all go and have a good week. Go hogs. And I was like, yeah, Tony, like I want that. I need that. And I want the hogs to win. I want God to be gracious to me. I want him to bless me, make his face shine. But I don't even know what that means, but I want it. Like, I, God, give me the good grades. Give me the good girlfriend. Get me out of this parking ticket. You're a good, good father, and I trust you. But why is David writing Psalm 67, verse 1? Is it just so that he can stack up blessings for himself? Does, does he imagine that God exists kind of like a genie in a lamp? No, Dave, David writes, God be gracious to us, bless us, make your face shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power, your salvation, your glory, to be worshipped among all the nations of the world, not just here in Israel, all the nations. We're, we're again, just looking at a snapshot, but if we had the time, we could look at 1,200, 1,200 spots in the Old Testament where God is revealing his heart to see the nations come to know him and worship him because he is the only one who can provide this saving power, this salvation. The nations exist in sin and rebellion. The nations rage and the people's plot in vain, says Psalm 2, against the Lord and his anointed. And even though the nations do that, the Lord counterplots against them to bring about their worship. Our God is more loving and gracious than we can I want to show you a couple more from the Old Testament, specifically the prophets. Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in Malachi 1.11, this is the last book in your Old Testament, written 400 years before Christ would show up on the earth. And it says, For from the rising of the sun into its setting, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is a people who have been exiled, judged, punished, the temple destroyed, the temple rebuilt, they've been oppressed, they've lost their kings, they've been divided, nothing's gone right for Israel or Judah, the people, nothing's gone right for them in a long time. And the prophets are still proclaiming it's going to happen. His name will be famous in all the earth. Praise God. He keeps his covenants. He's faithful even when we show ourselves to be faithless. He's still every promise in him is yes and amen. I, I want to look at one more from the Old Testament because, because this is the most famous verse in the Old Testament. And uh, it's a good one. I really love it. Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. Anybody got this uh, hanging up in their house somewhere? Or uh, yeah, a coffee cup or maybe you got it tattooed somewhere. It's a great verse, and if any generation ever needed the verse, be still and know that I am God, it is like us. <laughs> like We are desperate to try to control every single square inch of our lives. We're riddled with anxiety and depression because we just can't seem to get a control on all the things around us. We need to be still and know that God is God. We, we need to pause for a second and realize that we're not the sovereign king of the universe. <laughs> we're... We merely exist to know him. We need to be still. But for the longest time, I, I, I thought that was the end of the verse. I thought that was Psalms 
I would see it everywhere. I saw it on coffee mugs or I saw it above people's couches. I saw it on postcards and I was like, man, that's a great verse. Be still and know that I am God. Like, boom, done. Problem is that's just the first half of the verse. That's just Psalm 4610A. And what's so bad about Psalm 4610B that we just punt it? Like we're just be still and know that I'm like what how bad is it? How bad is it that we punt it? Like is it like be still and know that I am God and thou shalt not eat bacon? Like what are we talking about? What's so bad about part B? We cut it off. Psalm 4610 in its entirety says this be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God throughout all the Old Testament is calling his people to be a part of of blessing the nations. Israel was called to keep the commands of God, to worship God alone, and, and to be a light among the nations. And you know what the prophets say? It says that your law breaking and your lack of worship has profaned my name among the nations. You can find that message in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, every minor prophet. Israel failed the mission. But praise God, this verse is still true. God will be exalted in the earth. And how is that going to happen? How is God going to be exalted in the earth? Well, one is going to come, the offspring of Abram. And this is why Matthew chapter 1 opens this way. When you turn from Malachi, you get that empty page, and then it says the intro to the New Testament, and you flip it over, and it says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abram, the one who would come from his line to bless all the nations, the son of David, the one who would sit on the throne of David forever, He is going to come and he is going to fulfill all that Israel was meant to be. A law keeper, a God worshiper, and a light to the nations. And and very early on in his ministry, Jesus makes it very plain what his mission is. What he was sent to do. John 3.16, for God so loved Israel that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have Eternal life. What's the problem with that verse? Yeah, we think that's silly. That doesn't, that's not right. Let's fix it. There we go. The disciples had this tendency to think that God still loved Israel, that Jesus showed up. And, and sometimes I read the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm like, these guys were idiots. And then I have to point the finger back at me because <laughs> I'm like, even if I pretend that this isn't how I think, a lot of times this is where my head goes. And a lot of times this is where the American church goes. The reason I know that to be true is that 83% of American Christians, church-going evangelicals, 83%, don't know what the Great Commission is. If you don't know something, why would you be involved in it? The verse says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
This is the most famous verse in the Bible because within it's the good news of the gospel. Good news that I hope you know and, and believe and preach to yourself and celebrate and come to church to, to be reminded of. And to, like this should be the heartbeat of your life. And, and I, I want to encourage you, maybe you've never believed or understood this message before. I'd be crazy to be in a room of 50 people, even people who go to church and expect that everyone has believed, understood, received, and been saved by this message. So I want to proclaim it to you really quick. This, this verse says, God so loved the world, the world full of sinners, a world full of people who did not deserve a relationship with God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve no part with him. We don't deserve a relationship with him. But God so loved that world that he demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were weak, while we were enemies with God, God sent Jesus into the world. And Jesus lived out this perfect, sinless, holy, righteous life. He only thought good thoughts, true thoughts. He only spoke true words, gracious words, good words. And he only did righteous, loving, holy, healing deeds. That's all he did all the time. And what he should have received at the end of his ministry was a crown of thrones and, and the obedience, a crown, a throne, and the obedience of all people. What do we know he received instead? A crown of thorns and a, and a cross for our sin in our place. He died the death that we deserve. God demonstrated his love that while we were sinning, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. But he didn't stay dead, and that's what we get to celebrate next Sunday, is the beautiful resurrection of Jesus Christ, who had an imperishable life, an indestructible spirit. He rose from the grave. He laid down his life, and he took it up again of his own accord, so that we who are weak, who are fallen, who deserve no part with God, can come have a relationship with him for free. We can drink from the water of life without price. And we can experience eternal life starting today and extending into all eternity. We can worship God in spirit and in truth together forever. That's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to pay for your sin. Jesus offers to pay it all on your behalf. And he invites you to, to worship him for free. That's incredible. If that's the best news you'll ever hear, and it's the best news I'll ever hear, and if you haven't trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins, I, I implore you, I beg you today, be reconciled to God, put your faith in Jesus Christ, turn from your sin and trust in him, the sinless Savior, the King of Kings. He, he is ready, willing, he is more excited to forgive you than you are to go to him for forgiveness. That's how good our God is. That's the best news you'll ever hear. It's the, the best news in the history of the world. The only problem with this message is that it's only good news for those who hear it and only good news for those who believe it. Jesus says, whoever believes in him, he's talking about himself, whoever believes in me should not perish but have eternal life, which means sincere Muslims worshiping according to the Quran, believing in a false Christ, trusting in a false doctrine of who God is, they don't get to the Father. They don't experience eternal life. They're lost. That means sincere Hindus worshiping Krishna and Vishnu. Sincere Buddhists trying to follow the eightfold path to nirvana. Sincere Taoists and Confucius. Sincere, good, kind, humanist atheists. 
they don't believe in him, which means they don't have eternal life. So how selfish would I be if I didn't have the, the love to take it to those who are believing in, in false messages. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which means every other way is the wrong way. Every other way leads to death. And the reason it leads to death is because it's a lie. Just like what Satan said to, to, to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, when he tempts them to sin, that won't, you won't die. You won't die. You'll become like God yourself. Jesus says, no, I am the door. I am the life. I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for his sheep. Trust in me. I'll give you eternal life. And which, which, when you reflect on it, when you reflect on the exclusive claims of Christ, but the, the inclusive claims of Christ as well, like the fact that he's trying to draw all the world unto himself, that he's trying to unite all the world unto himself. It makes sense then while that when he rose from the grave, he preached for 40 days and he's got one topic that he is just hitting over and over and over and over again. And it's what believers are meant to do in light of what he's done. But before we get to Jesus's command to us for what we're meant to do, I, I want to tell you a story about an invitation I received when I was eight. Uh, when I was eight years old, I'm from Fayetteville, Arkansas. I said I was from Arkansas, northwest Arkansas, uh, northwest corner of Arkansas. And uh, we didn't have a theme park super close by, like a Six Flags, but my grandmother loved me uh, taking me and my cousins to a place called Silver Dollar City. Maybe you've been there before. Uh, it's like hokey Six Flags. Uh, it's awesome. It's sweet. It's up in the Ozark Mountains. It's a beautiful theme park. Uh, and when I was eight years old, I got the first invite, and the year was 2000. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know what a theme park was, but I like themes and I like parks, so I was like, "Sure, Nanny, I'll go." Her name was Nancy. You can probably see how we, how we got there. So I hop in her Subaru with my older cousins, and I look up to them, and they love the theme park. They love roller coasters. It's my first chance to go. I'm like super pumped. We start this two-hour drive north. I get there, and we're in the parking lot, and I'm super excited, and we're walking in. And then I see it off in the distance, a big red metal loop in the sky. And there's a car going around it, and people are screaming bloody murder. And I go, uh, Nanny, what's that? She goes, Will, that's our, that's our ride. I said, that's not my ride. I'm not doing that. Too high, Nanny, too fast, too upside down. No, not doing it. And, and she was like, well, I'm doing it. I was like, <laughs> yeah, right. And there she was, 75 years old. Blonde dyed hair, blowing in the wind. She was like hands in the air on the big one, the red one. I'm like, no. So all day I'm doing my kind of rides, the carousel and the Ferris wheel and then funnel cake and then like round two. And at like two o'clock, my grandmother sees me back in line for funnel cake. She's like, what are you doing, man? Like, so she comes over to console me and she puts her hand on my shoulder really kindly and says, Will, you're a wuss. At which point I started crying, you know, like a wuss. But I was also mad. I was like, Will Watson's a wuss, Danny. So I dusted powdered sugar off my shirt. And I started walking for this ride called Wildfire. 
And uh, it's the big red one that goes upside down. And I'm eight, and I'm sweaty, and I'm sticky, and I'm scared. It's a bad day. And then I'm not in line. I'm at the front of the line, and a very helpful attendant comes and, like, shoves me down into a seat. And then descending over my head like a death trap. These metal bars covered in rubber padding, and I think, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. Single. <laughs> Lindsay would never know. But what was crazy is that like five minutes, five minutes later, I'm hopping off and I'm out of line. I'm just looking back at the thing. And I had been baptized uh, by wildfire. I've become an apologist for uh, roller coasters and uh, an evangelist to tell everybody the good news about roller coasters. I was like going up to every five and 10 year old kid in the park. Like, I know it looks scary. I know it looks fast, but you got to get on the ride. I know what I... Trust me, trust me. I had the same excuses, but you still got to go. I go up to this kid named Timmy. I'm like, Timmy, you going to ride? He's like, I got to ask my dad. I'm like, <laughs> come on, bro. So I drag him over to ask his dad. His dad's over there holding the baby. I'm like, can Timmy go on the ride? He's like, I don't care. Why aren't you going? I'm holding the baby. I was like, well, get the baby on there, man. Like, everybody's got to go. Everybody. I, I, I remember, like, just being like, why – like, how, 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 how did I waste so much time on the Ferris wheel and the carousel? Like, why would I let my fear of the unknown stop me from something that good? Well, when I think about God's heart for the world and his desire to use his people to reach all the nations of the world, well, I think there's fear of the unknown. Like, Jesus, that looks really high and fast. And upside down. And that's for special Christians who are bolder than me, more charismatic than me. But I'm not sure that's for, that's for, that's for me. Like, what would this even mean? What, what, about, what about life after college? What about the relationship I'm in? What about my parents' expectations? What about my kids' expectations? What about, and we've all got a thousand reasons. What about the mortgage I'm paying? What about the... I don't have a cookie-cutter answer for you. I really don't. But the word of God is true. Jesus said not one tittle of it would pass away. And, and here's Jesus' words to us, to believers, what we're to do in light of what he's accomplished. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is called the Great Commission. It's interesting that it's called the Great Commission, though. It should be, it should be called the First Great Commission because there's not one Great Commission. This is just the first one listed, but there's not one. There's five. I want to look at the other four as well as Matthew 28, 19. Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world, preach the good news to all creation. If you're not a big fan of Mark 16, just because like it wasn't found in the manuscripts till a couple hundred years later, I can theologize, I can get, like, let's have that discussion sometime. That's really fun. But even if you don't like that, you could always turn to Mark 13, 10, where he says this gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed to all nations. So you don't even need this verse. But let's move on. I digress. Luke 24, it is written, repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. What was written? 
that God would bless all the world through the offspring of Abraham. This is an old message. It was written right before this. It says that Jesus opened the apostles' minds to understand that all of it was pointing at him and that he was pointing at all the nations. And, and so here he says this. In John, Jesus says, this might be my favorite or least favorite just depending on the day of the week. Here, here's what he says. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Forty times in the book of John, Jesus is called the sent one from the Father to us. It's 41 when he says that. And, and Jesus is essentially saying the prayer is no longer God. Am I sent? Am I called? Please say no. I got a lot going on. Like, No, Jesus is saying the prayer is God. Where am I sent and to who am I called? And, and some of us will go further geographically than others. And honestly, like I would tell you all right now, we're in Monroe. Well, Acts 17, 26 says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place so that they might seek after God and find him. You are stationed here and placed here to make his name famous here. But God might not keep you here. He might have a desire to send you somewhere else. And would you be willing to go? And if you're anything like me, hearing that I might be, that I'm sent here, first of all, that's intimidating. Like, it's hard, like, preach the gospel, make disciples. <laughs> Jesus, that's tough. <laughs> like, I don't know if I could do this. I remember the first time I heard this, I was like, ah, ooh, stress. Like, uh, this is high, this is fast, this is upside down. I feel like the roller coaster again. Uh, 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 Jesus, are you sure you want to send me? Like, I have emotional needs. I have student debt, Jesus. I'm bald. Like, surely you can <laughs> send somebody else better out there, you know? But what's amazing is that in the final Great Commission, Jesus has an answer for our insecurity and, frankly, our inadequacy. Here's what it says. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. For the longest time, I heard the Great Commission, and all I could think is, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't do it, I can't do it. There's no way. It's too hard. I'm too embarrassed. I have too big of a fear of man. I, I, just, I just can't, Jesus. And Jesus' answer to me was, yes, you're right, Will. You get it. You can't. We can't do it. We can't make disciples. Preach the gospel with power like repentance and for the forgiveness that we have no ability in our own skin to do this thing. But you receive the power from the Holy Spirit. A member of the Trinity dwells within us to proclaim things that the second person of the Trinity accomplished and that the Father planned. So we're just being invited up into the heavenlies in this mission like we're just getting to join the triune god and what he's doing to make his name famous in all the earth and, and if god is doing it it can't fail which means if you'll join god in this mission and trust in his holy spirit to to do this you can't fail because it's what god is doing Jesus said, though, go to all nations, like, so much. Like, it's just on repeat at the end of the Great Commission. Why, why does he have to say it so much? Like, five different times, 
at five different geographic locations. These aren't retelling of the same statement, by the way. He gives these at five different periods in history, post-resurrection, pre-ascension. Why does he feel the need to do that? If Jesus did give us one great commission, shouldn't that have been enough? I think it's because he knows me. I think it's because he knows us. And if the great commission was one verse at the end of Matthew, we would make it the great option, the great invitation, the great opinion. Jesus is not giving us his opinion on what he thinks we should do. He's not inviting us to something that, you know, might be fun. He's commanding us to, 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 hit, to live for his purpose and his kingdom in all the earth. Hudson Taylor said it like this. The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. Jesus gave us five great commissions. The Apostle Paul gave us a strategy. He said, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Funny enough, Paul didn't have one great commission written down for him to understand that the gospel was going to all nations and that he had a part to play to see it go there. Paul said, I'm going to places where Christ was not known so I wouldn't be building on someone else. So Paul's whole mission is I'm going to go places and make Jesus known. And then I'm going to go somewhere else I'm going to make him known there. And I'm going to go somewhere else and make him known. And he literally just did that process for 30 years. And what's crazy is we could do the same thing because there's still, well, to a certain extent. Like not everybody in the world speaks Greek anymore. But we could go to places that have no foundation because there's still so many of them. And they're mostly in this box. You've probably heard of this before. And, and your global workers are targeting an area inside this part of the world. It's called the 1040 window. It's called that because it runs from 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north, and it runs through North Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, India, China, and Japan. It's significant because two out of every three people alive today are in that box. Five billion people live in the 1040 window. Maybe more significantly, though, three billion of them are unreached, and unreached is different than unsaved. So I want to do some definition work so that, so that people in this room who've maybe not heard a definition for unsaved versus unreached will have those categories. An unsaved person might live here in Monroe, and, and, and they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not a believer. That means they're lost, and, and we need to be faithful to proclaim the gospel to them and invite them to church and invite them into a relationship with Jesus. Like, let's be about seeing lost people come to know Jesus. But when we talk about unreached people versus unsaved people, when I say unreached people, three billion of them, I'm talking about people who have never seen, heard, or read anything about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They've never stepped foot in a church. They don't have access to a Bible in their language. They've never listened to a worship song truly about the, the risen, saving Son of God, which means unless something changes in 80 years, they'll die with no access. They'll die without ever hearing one time. In the 1970s in, uh, I think it was Switzerland, a bridge went down. It was night, it was a really foggy night. A bridge that it, it's run over a cliff, 500 feet below, you've got water, there's a river running through and a barge is going through and the bridge collapses. And the bridge lands straight on top of this barge. And everybody on the barge is miraculously fine. 
and, and the radio comms, though, get knocked down. And it's a really foggy night, and, and, and everybody on the barge is like, well, we're stuck here. The, the boat's wrecked. Like, we don't have telecoms. We're going to have to wait until somebody sees this. We'll just have to wait it out until someone sees us in the morning. But it was a really foggy night. And so for the next 45 minutes, as they're doing everything to get their comms back up, they're watching his headlights approach on both sides of the road. And people have no idea that this bridge is out. And, and for 45 minutes, they watch people barrel into eternity, having no clue of what's about to hit them. They have no clue that the bridge is out. There's three billion people, and that's their status. There's no one telling them that the bridge is out. There's no one telling them that, the, that, that there is one who has come, who has bridged their way back to God through his life, death, and resurrection. There's no one telling them. The difference between us and the guys on that barge is they couldn't get their comms working. But if they could have, they would have been shouting. You could literally hear them screaming, trying to get anybody to hear them for hours. Stop, stop, stop. Doing everything they could to get their comms up. Do we really believe Jesus is the only way to God? Because if we did, wouldn't we be doing everything in our power to get the message to where it's not? To where people have no access? We don't show you the 1040 window to make anyone feel guilty or ashamed, not at all. We, we want to bring up this part of the world to say, continue to fund what is already happening here. We're so thrilled that y'all have global workers that are being raised up and sent out and being trained well and provided for well by the church and cared for well by the congregation and sent with a really great agency that's going to this part of the world to people who have no access. Praise God. Don't stop. Keep going. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of young people in this room. Might God use you in the next two years, in the next five years, in the next 10 years to take the gospel somewhere where it hasn't gone before? There's older folks in this room. Might God use you to take the gospel where it hasn't gone before? Don't count yourself out just because you're over the age of 50. God wants to use you. God didn't call Abram until he was 75. You don't think God could still use you? You don't think you could still go? Join God in what he's doing. And what's cool is, again, every promise finds their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so we can look at the 1040 window and, and, and feel burdened, but also feel privileged because God is going to reach everyone in that box. He's going to reach every group in that box, I should say, every group of people. And how do we know that? Well, because God promised in Genesis 12 that through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And in Revelation 7, 9, we see the fulfillment of that promise. Here's what it looks like. This is a picture of heaven, by the way. The apostle John was given a vision of what heaven was going to look like. So John, imagine this, John's looking out into the future. He's looking way beyond uh, his own moment in time, history, and space. And he is not only seeing his future, Christian, he's seeing your future. He's seeing our future. Here's what he sees. Uh, uh, behold, this great multitude that no one could even number, 
And they're from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus. The gospel is going to break its way into every tribe, language, tongue, nation, people. We can be still and know that God is God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. Revelation 7, 9 will come true. The only question is, will we join God in a purpose that, that ultimately is, is successful, is, is permanent? Is, I mean, there's only two things that last forever. Word of God and the souls of men. Will we give ourselves to seeing the word of God proclaimed among souls who, who've never heard it? Will we give ourselves to seeing this message come true? Or will we give ourselves to some other purpose that, that the culture tries to give us, the world tries to sell us? Will we live in pursuit of Revelation 7-9? Or will we live for the American dream? And if you're like, I, I, I want to live in pursuit of Revelation 7-9, we have, a, we have such easy action steps for you. Go and send. This is how we join God's mission. Go and send. We all are called to go exactly where we're at. Some of us are called to go to the ends of the earth. I'm not going to back off of that. And when I say go, I don't just mean like go and be nice to people. Nobody's going to watch you help an old lady cross the street and come to know Jesus. Like, like share the gospel and then live it out. That's how people come to know Jesus. Do it here and then do it everywhere. Do it short term and do it long term. Do it today and do it tomorrow and do it for the rest of your life. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Trust his eternal power. Trust his sending of the Holy Spirit to make you a witness here in this community and in all the earth. I'm praying that there are, that Monroe is changed by the people in this room, but not just Monroe, that Louisiana is changed by the people in this room. And that the world is changed by people in this room. Like, God, raise up goers from this room into all the earth. Raise up more. But don't just raise up goers, God. Raise up faithful senders. Senders are someone who's aware of the goer. They love the goer. They love the people they're going to. So they're naturally, like y'all did this morning, praying for your global workers, praying for the people they're going to, and then not stopping and praying for them. You put your money where your mouth is and say, I want to invest. Third John Verses 6 through 8 talk, talks about supporting those who go out for the sake of his name among the Gentiles. For we ought to support those workers because if we support them, then we're fellow workers for the truth. So, so maybe you're not a goer to the ends of the earth. You're a goer here, but that means you're sending there. All of us have a part to play. And if you want to join God in his mission, if you haven't, I would encourage you to take this card home. Look at it in your own Bible. See that God is on a mission to reach the world. See that this is not my idea. This is in the American church's idea. This is God's mission. On the back side of the card, it says, I commit myself. And I want you to take this home and, and consider, like, have you joined God's mission? And would you join God's mission? The back of the card says, I commit myself to obeying Christ and declaring his salvation to the unreached world by serving as a cross-cultural goer or sacrificial sender. The people of Israel, when they crossed the River Jordan, were commanded to pick up a stone. They picked it up so that in the coming generations, they could tell of the children the goodness of their God, 
to bring them faithfully into the land, how he dried up the waters of the Red Sea and then dried up the River Jordan so that they could enter into the land that God had promised them. This could be a little, <laughs> it's not a stone, it's a piece of paper. But it could be a little Ebenezer reminder for you. Here's why, here's the day that I joined God in his mission. I know a lot of you have already joined God in his mission, praise God, but think through how we could all take next steps in, in going even further, in making the next sacrifice to see another people group reached and Jesus proclaimed. Let me close this out in prayer. Um, and I'm just really thankful that we got to be here with y'all this morning and I'm just so encouraged. So God, we praise you because you have drawn us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of your son through his blood. You have ransomed us, a people who did not deserve and could not be in your presence. We get to draw confidently near to your throne of grace to find mercy in our time of need. And we're just thankful that we get to be in relationship with you. And we're thankful that you have called us to be a part of your mission to, to bless all the nations of the world. And, and we're thankful that we get to do that together as, as a universal church and, and as a as a local church, as a visible expression of the gospel here in Monroe. God, continue to raise up laborers from this room who will go into all the world to proclaim the gospel, to plant healthy churches according to your word. God, I pray that we wouldn't take shortcuts. I pray that we would work hard. I pray that we would be sanctified by your word and by the spirit and, and by the fellowship of believers in this room. I pray that senders would be raised up who would send sacrificially to see the unreached reached. God, use us in this room, this small group of people, use us to, to be a part of what you're doing for your glory and your praise because you are worthy of it all, Jesus. It's in your holy name we pray, amen.